Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B., and joining me today is a man who should need no introduction, the owner-operator Grand Poobah of Die Hard Game Fan, and general all-around great guy, Mr. Alexander Lucard. How you doing today, sir? Ah, I'm doing okay. Good to hear. So, last week's podcast was a discussion on video gaming musicals as it relates to the idea of how video gaming can potentially be used to work with the musical genre in a way that maybe film and theater potentially lose some of that. And it was kind of meant as a sort of setup to this week's podcast, sort of a I told you that story so I can tell you this one kind of thing. So in last week's podcast, for those who did not listen to it as sort of a TLDR recap, we kind of discussed musical language, musical theory, film language, theater, theatrical language, and set the groundwork, more or less, for why musicals would work well in the world of video gaming. So, the leading question here is, why are there so few musicals in gaming, since gaming itself feels like it would be a medium that would adapt well to the idea of conveying plot narrative that is expressed in song. And if you want to find the answer to that sort of question, you go and you get yourself somebody who's an expert. So I kind of poked around a bit and I found Mr. Lucard, who is probably one of the few people who has played more games that have musical elements in them than I have. So let's get down to business. It's worth noting that musicals and gaming haven't really been a thing until fairly recently. Like, CD technology in general has only been kicking around for maybe 25 years at this point, and it was only introduced in gaming in around the early 90s. Even then, you really only had the Sega CD and PC gaming that had access to that sort of thing. It didn't really catch on until the mid-90s due to the combination of CD-ROM drives being a big deal in the PC gaming market, and the fact that the Sony PlayStation 1 just exploded in popularity. So it's there hasn't really been a whole lot of time relative to how long video games have been around for musicals to kind of jump into the narrative, as it were. That's not to say that they haven't tried. I mean, Moonwalker is a thing that existed back on the Genesis. Yeah, well, and um, with the Sega CD, of course, you know, they tried um, back with CNC Music Factory and Crisscross Make Your Own, which was the first time that you really could make your own musical. But, I mean, both the games were terrible and the bands weren't the best to choose from. And then you would see other people, other companies, that w had the potential to use the um, the Sega CD for musicals, but didn't. Like Lunar, which, you know, the whole main female protagonist, her magic power comes from singing, and besides the very prologue song, she has five notes in the entire game. That's true, though. I kind I kind of wonder if that's a thing where maybe the technology was still so new, where game arts at the time was like, you know what, let's just do the one song to be safe. And it's, I mean, it's not like working designs wouldn't have done that sort of modification if they felt that that was worthwhile. <laughs> but basically, Lunar was voice acted by everybody in their office at that point. So, yeah. 
Well, and I, but I mean, that's that's the first time that they really had the chance to do something with it. And I think everyone both hesitated because the technology was too new. And then the one company that actually tried made some crappy musical games. And I think that set the tone for, you know, how things have progressed to today, where someone will try something and it might do OK. But more often than not, there's been more backlash than praise, except for two games, Rhapsody in 1999-2000 and this year's Tokyo Mirage Session. Everything else has been eh to, oh God. Well, I mean, to be fair, there's there's a certain degree of praise for the idea of musicals, provided that they stick within a certain subgenre, right? Because yeah. we've seen... Yeah, definitely. We've seen lots of games that kind of sort of follow the musical concept. It's just that they're all fucking rhythm games. Oh, yeah. You know, everything from Parappa to Unjammer Lammy, those kind of fall under the musical category, but they definitely are more of a rhythm game. But, I mean, Sing Star shows that people like to sing along with music, Karaoke Revolution, but those are more, of course, you know, karaoke games than a flat-out game that is also a musical. Sure. But we've also seen rhythm games in general spike and do good numbers. Definitely. Rock Band and Guitar Hero were a big thing for a while. Dance Dance Revolution was basically the thing that kept the arcades going, at least in the West, Yeah, well beyond the point where they should have died off. But for games that actively tried to do the musical concept where you're telling a story either in general or through the music, it's been a little bit of a bumpier ride. Oh, yeah. Like, Space Channel 5 was probably the, the er example for years, in a lot of cases, of that sort of thing. Nobody bought that. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those games that when it first came up for the Dreamcast, there was all sorts of hype, and people were like, oh, look, Michael Jackson is in it, and Ooh La La is a great character. And, you know, there was all this pre-buzz hype, and then when it came, it didn't really sell, and Sega's, you know, tried to put Ooh La La in other things from, like, a racing game to the Project X Cross, which is more of an Amco Bandai thing, but it's one of those examples where there was hype and it wasn't a bad game, but for some reason sales just didn't generate. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot of the games that fall into the rhythm genre that were kind of musically inclined, like wanted to be a musical specifically, kind of sit on the outer edge. Like even though Parappa is considered to be a Sony mascot and appeared in Sony's attempt at doing a Smash Brothers game recently, that franchise has been dead since Parappa the Rapper 2 on the PlayStation 2. And outside of that, what can we really think of that falls into that category unless you're the sort of person who, you know, is, is crazy enough to follow this shit around like we do? <laughs> you've got Space Channel 5, you've got Parappa the Rapper and Jammer Lammy. All right, then what? Well, Guitaru Man, which was a game that was so unnotable that at one point the PlayStation 2 version of it was worth over $100. Major Miner's Majestic March, which for many of you, this is the first time you've heard of that game. And Elite Beat Agents, which even with the really strong underground following that game has, was, was still a very cult classic. The closest thing we've gotten to a game that has any kind of significant hype while still trying to do the musical concept is Persona 4 Dancing All Night, and that link is kind of tenuous at best. I mean, to be fair, Idle Death Game TV, which is an upcoming game in Japan, may actually be a thing that kind of brings that concept full circle for the Western audiences, 
because it's a misery tourism game. That game is going to make it over here sooner or later, let's be honest. But, like, this, like in the past couple of years, this is the closest that we've come to people actively paying money for games that are also musicals and not really thinking anything about it. Yeah, um, I mean, 2016 has actually been a really good year in that we have two pretty good games that are musicals. I really enjoyed Wailing Heights for what it was, which is probably the first time, as you've said, a lot of people are hearing about that. It's an obscure PC point-and-click adventure game that has a pretty good musical aspect to it. And, of course, Tokyo Mirage Sessions, which is, you know, probably the most successful musical video game we've had in the East or the West since Rhapsody. Right. And to be fair, though, that's not a particularly big bar to clear. Yeah. I mean, two. Woo! That That's, like, the most in... 20 years? Yeah. Oh. And it's it's musicals outside of the rhythm genre are kind of like a unicorn in a lot of respects. Like I was putting together a list just of games that are musical-ish that aren't rhythm games. And there's a lot of them that kind of sort of exist but have a big asterisk next to them. Like Epic Mickey 2 is a prime example. There's musical stuff all over that, right? But it's a Disney game. Yeah, I mean, you would expect Disney games to have music in them because that's one of their big draws. If the Sega Genesis or the Super Nintendo could have, they would have had the full soundtrack for Aladdin or The Lion King in those games. Oh, absolutely. And then, like, beyond that, it, it's, it kind of starts breaking down a lot. Conker's Bad Fur Day had one segment that was meant to make fun of Disney movies. Child of Eden was basically res, but more fully realized as to what the creator wanted to do. And while it definitely has musical elements, it's mostly just Panzer Dragoon with less narrative. So it, it, it doesn't it doesn't really work. Ephemeral Fantasia kind of sort of had sequences where you would play a guitar, but nobody was singing. The guitar mechanics were only there to promote a controller that Konami had developed for the Japanese market exclusively that never made it to the West. So you had a mechanic that was based off of a controller that we never actually got and shoehorned into quite possibly one of the worst JRPGs of all time. And of course, Omega Quintet, a game that's based around idol culture where a lot of the characters are doing the singing and dancing thing and nobody ever sings a song. Ever. Yeah, it seems that the most often you'll see a musical number in a video game is with a role-playing game. Like, Sacred 2 had an obscure quest where you have a metal concert that you can unlock, or the last SSI Dungeon Dragons video game, Runes of Mithranor, has a musical number at the very end during the credits, so after you play a long 40-hour RPG, you might listen to it. But you, we see a lot of the games that are either musicals nowadays, are either adventure games or role-playing games, and it's slightly different from how we think of a musical in the theater, because that's two to three hours of a play, and maybe two hours of it is singing, maybe an hour and a half the least. Whereas with a video game, like Tokyo Mirage Sessions, it's a 68-hour RPG. If you total up the total music in there without you know repeating the songs, it's 15 minutes of actual music. Rhapsody's a 10-hour RPG. There's maybe 90 minutes to two hours of singing. Oh, yeah, and again, like, even going back to earlier examples, Lunar, the one of the first examples that had any type of musical elements at all, the, the game is a full-on JRPG. In many respects, the very first release of it is a Nintendo-hard JRPG. 
and that just starts off with the musical element and then goes nowhere with it. Uh, Fire Emblem Fates kind of, sort of has that, though it's just the one character singing the same god-awful song for hours on end. But it's it's still, it's, it's a turn-based strategy game. Persona 4 even has a side quest, but only the golden version, I should note, where the character Risei Kujikawa puts on a concert, and that's, you know, dead in the middle of the game. It's a four-minute sequence in a 100-hour JRPG. For, for the most part, it feels as though Western audiences are primarily getting the musical aspect of things from adventure games. As you had mentioned, Wailing Heights, there had been a game that was in development called Soon Sonata that was unfortunately canceled. And of course, there was that god-awful piece of shit that you told me about, Dominique Pamplemousse. I'm sorry about that, but you had to listen to it. It's so bad. I really didn't. If if you're listening to this, don't go look that up. It is so bad. Yes, look it up. Don't look it up. It's it, it's pure singing though. It's an hour long adventure game, and it's just singing, really, really bad off key singing for the entire game. Nothing else. Yeah, I can admire somebody. I can admire somebody putting in the effort to make a thing that they really want because it's you know if you want a game to be this way, why don't you make it? And well, unfortunately, that's the answer. Well, and. I think Dominique Pomplemouse is a good example of someone trying to make a pure musical game, but people like, I mean, you and me who are very interested in that as a growing genre for video games, listen to that, or in my case, played it, and we're like, oh God, oh God, because think how many people either played that and was like, well, this is terrible, I don't want to play musical video games, or was a developer considering it and played that and was like, oh, oh no, what am I thinking of? Yeah, uh, I don't, I appreciate the idea, effort was put in, you know, good for you, that's, that's definitely an effort that you made, and I can't, I can't really, you know, hate on you for at least making the, the attempt, but there, there are just some things where we probably just should not venture into that direction. And I think the problem is, a lot of the people that are interested in musicals as a video game genre either don't have the talent, singing or development-wise, or don't have the funds or the ability to pitch their game. And so I think, like I said, the best one in 20 years was the first Marl's Kingdom game, Rhapsody. And, you know, that did decently in the U.S., but there was a lot of backlash to that. And the re-release for the Nintendo 3DS, you know, so many mistakes on Nipponichi's end, which, you know, caused that entire line to die out so we're not going to get any more sequels in the u.s even though that was the publisher's fault not the audience's fault and now tokyo mirage session that's a huge time gap between two well-received rpgs right and it's i i guess the kind of question that you could start off with from here with that kind of knowledge in mind is why haven't musicals become something because there have been successes to a certain extent and i i guess the the starting point here is to kind of realize that successes from how we perceive them aren't necessarily the same thing as how developers and publishers might perceive a success. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like Rhapsody. Rhapsody in 1999 for the PlayStation 1 or PSX, you know, it sold pretty well for an Atlas video game in the late 90s. It sold well enough that Atlas was like, you know what? Let's bring over another Nipponichi game. Oh, Disgaea. And Disgaea became one of their, if not the best-selling Atlas video game of all time to that point. It's been definitely surpassed by the Personas since then, but 
I mean, then they were like, oh, Disgaea, let's do, you know, that brought Nipponichi over here because it sold so incredibly well. And both Atlas and Nipponichi kind of forgot about Rhapsody because Disgaea took off crazy numbers. But we wouldn't have had Disgaea if Atlas hadn't taken the chance with Rhapsody and it hadn't been so well received by both critics and fans. Right. And it's it's the, the problem is, is that success is relative. Rhapsody for its time was successful for Atlas. But any companies outside of that Atlas Exceed, uh, Axis, working designs sort of zone where you're importing games and you're expecting maybe 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 sales if you're lucky, when somebody who is of a larger caliber, like, say, a Sega, who for some reason has been actively interested in trying to get musicals over for years, God bless them, or a Nintendo, or whoever looks at those kind of numbers, they're like, those numbers are terrible. I'm not going to deal with something like that. And again, Atlas is a completely different company from who they were at the time that Rhapsody came out, because in a lot of cases, everything they have touched for years has turned to gold in the West. Because there's Disgaea, there's you know Persona 3, Persona 4, Demon Souls, Catherine, just game after game after game that they've released that outsold by an order of magnitude, their own internal expectations to a point where looking back at something like Rhapsody, they're like, Oh, I'm not going to touch that. Fuck that game. Yeah. And, and the, it's, it's so relative. Like if Rhapsody had been released in 2016 by Atlas or Nipponichi, how well would it have sold? And maybe it would have been a relative success because I mean, as much as we who are gamers that have been playing since, you know, the Atari and Coleco visions, the sales numbers back then and the, the audience size was a lot smaller in 1999-2000 than it is today. And then, of course, when Nipponichi tried to bring it over for um, the 3DS, a, a port of that, back in, I want to say, was it 2006, 2007, somewhere around there? It was right when we started Die Hard Game Fan. Right. You know, they screwed that up royally. And you know I love Nipponichi to death, but they made every mistake possible with, with the re-release of that. Because everyone including the japanese were hoping for a dual audio soundtrack on that cart because rhapsody the u.s version is one of those rare occasions where the english dub both singing and talking was considered superior to the original japanese it's like robotech how that has that huge audience or slayers next or even vampire hunter d where people prefer the the english dub for whatever reasons good or bad um, and of course, Nipponichi only brought over the Japanese track, and that freaked a lot of people out because they couldn't sing along with the songs that, you know, either they had enjoyed the first time around or at all. And of course, there was also missing content when it came over, and the or the um, translation wasn't very good, and there were just a whole host of problems that were with the 3DS version that didn't happen with the Atlas PSX version, and that kind of killed the franchise dead over here. Yeah, and it's the problem is is that if you're going to look at rhythm games, or if you're going to look at musical games, a, as we outlined in the beginning, you're generally going to be looking at rhythm games as your default mode of conveying that sort of thing. And rhythm games are the sorts of games where a lot of publishers, a lot of developers are going to be looking for something that's a little bit more accessible, that's a little bit less story-heavy. They're just going to look for a delivery mechanism to get people doing the motions and whatnot and move on with their day. 
a lot of the games that we've mentioned, we love those games, but they didn't make it out of the fifth, the sixth console generations alive. Space Channel 5 died on the Dreamcast. Parappa died at the beginning of the PlayStation 2 era, uh, again, predominantly because a lot of its scores were not particularly good in the strictest sense, and the game didn't sell especially well. But if you look outside of the rhythm genre, outside of Rhapsody, there is really only one game that you can look at that was released by a company of reasonable import and designed as at least partially a musical product, and that's The Bard's Tale. Which I loved. And I thought that game was fine, but I generally think most In Exile games are fine. And the problem is that that's all I can really say about In Exile as a developer, is that they're fine. I don't think that they were equipped to make that sort of a game into something more than what it was, which was an interesting niche title. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm looking at their current Kickstarter for, you know, a new Planescape game and, and kind of cringing a little bit, if I'm going to be honest, because I don't I don't think that that is a company that is equipped to bring these sorts of beloved franchises to the modern market. And as much as I might have enjoyed The Bard's Tale as a thing that existed, I don't like that was not a game that anybody paid any kind of attention to outside of people like us. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, when Bard's Tale first was announced, there was a lot of hype behind it because, honestly, in the 1980s, Bard's Tale was probably the absolute biggest RPG genre um, in the world. It it would outsell Final Fantasy. It would outsell Fantasy Star. But it was a very different beast from the 2004 remake. The the original games, the original three in the construction kit, were first-person dungeon crawls. Whereas the remake was basically a Dark Alliance clone with Carrie Yules as the voice of the bard and a lot of musicals. And so the core audience, the Bard's Tale audience, was like, well, this isn't my Bard's Tale. And so they eschewed it. And some other gamers were like, oh, singing? I don't actually want a game about a bard that has singing because that's lame. And so there were a lot of strikes against it. Because like Space Channel 5, there was a lot of hype, but it didn't translate into sales, even though the game was of pretty good quality for that year. Yeah, I mean, I still like the game. I still think it's interesting for what it is. I I feel like perhaps it's a bit too self-aware at times. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's probably its biggest flaw. Yeah, and it's I don't I feel like we were a few years away from being at that point where you could break the fourth wall and everybody was just like, oh, that's a thing that's happening. And I mean, that's weird because tutorials have kind of always been a thing that does that. Like, this is going back to the previous podcast. So it's it's not like we aren't aware of the idea that the games are talking to us at points. But I think that game just did it too hard too fast. No, I agree. It was Deadpool before Deadpool as a concept took off. And Yeah, it definitely, it definitely was. It's very much that sort of thing where it's really just a deadpan snarker where the game is way more in on the joke than the player is. And I honestly feel like if that game had come out five or six years later, it probably would have done a lot better, not just from a presentation perspective, but from a a perspective where InXL probably would have had a better idea of how to handle that sort of thing. And again, I I, I find myself saying that a lot about InXL games. They're very ambitious. They're very 
interested in trying to get across a really unique vision that unfortunately is often betrayed by what's readily capable at the time because they have a lot of really visionary ideas that don't pay off and unfortunately i feel like bard's tale was kind of one of those yeah um like i'm on the the alpha and the beta the early access to the numenera version of planescape that they're making mm-hmm. and it's not good i mean i'll probably get lynched for saying that but i i'm a huge planescape fan and i'm you know, one of the creators of Numenera's favorite writers, and I can say that it is not a game I've enjoyed playing so far. Yeah, and that's... Wasteland's really good, though. Wasteland 2 is great. I mean, sure, but take away the Fallout aesthetic, and what do you have left, you know? Yeah, just an isometric RPG. Right, it's it's a game that says, hey, do you guys remember Fallout 2? So do we, and, you know, that's great. I'm glad that that exists for people who love Fallout, if only because I'm sick and tired of hearing people say fallout 4 isn't the fallout that i want but outside of that it's it's just fallout it's just fallout made by a different company with a different name attached and that's fine but like this isn't you know this isn't the same thing as like black isle developing their own you know kind of fallout e game set in like a medieval world that was you know pillars of eternity this is this is a company that's that's always aiming for the stars and like you know crashing into the hill like a mile over. Yeah. So it's it's the point of this is not to tear down in exile, obviously, because I <laughs> I, I like in exile. I do. I, I thought hunted the demon forge was a great thing for what it was, but it's more the point that the bard's tale is the closest that we've come to a western developed musical put out by a company that was willing to bankroll it and give it the attention it deserved, and it failed in every possible respect. So it's between that and Rhapsody, there's very little incentive for a lot of developers to even bother trying to invest. Mm-hmm. No, and and I mean, it's a very different market nowadays, both demographically, who's playing and enjoying video games, than it was back in 2004 when The Bard's Tale came out, or 1999 when Rhapsody hit Western Shores. You know, back in the late 90s and even the up until probably, I'd say, five or six years ago, it was still very much gaming was for men. And there was a stigma against anything that could be considered feminine or games geared towards female unless they were like Barbie horse adventures. And for good or for bad there's still a lot of Westerners that feel musicals are for girls. And while I strongly disagree with that, that's probably one of the big reasons why musical gaming hasn't taken off until, well, really recently, where women have had a lot more buying and developing power in the industry. Oh, absolutely. And it's at at the risk of this turning into a thing that is, is going to negatively resonate with a certain subset of the audience, the reality of the situation is that that can only be of benefit to the marketplace, especially if you're somebody who's invested in the idea of the possibility of video game musicals. Because, like, this is the thing. There are a lot of musicals that are going to specifically play off of that idea of musicals are for girls or whatever the shit. And I'm sure that, you know, you've seen some in some capacity or another. Phantom of the Opera is definitely a thing that is geared toward a very specific audience. Rent is unfortunately geared toward a very specific and very depressing audience. There are 
definitely musicals that fall into that category. But, you know, I grew up with Little Shop of Horrors on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And Sweeney Todd is a thing that we've seen actually remade in the past, like, 10 to 15 years. And even though it was Tim Burton and Johnny Depp again, that was still pretty damn good. Yeah, and, and Fox has been doing musicals. They did that recent remake of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They did Grease a couple of months ago, I believe it was. So musicals are coming back into vogue with the general public. So hopefully at some point that will progress towards getting over with the general video game public. I would agree. And I feel like that's a good transition to kind of looking into where video game musicals are at the moment. Because there's kind of a lot of stuff going on on the periphery that's interesting as far as musical gaming is concerned. And while not all of it is good news, there's definitely that sort of indication that maybe we're starting to see developers and publishers alike look at that genre and say, you know what, we could experiment with that a little bit. Because, I mean, we're, we're going back like 5, 10, 15 years to the point where Rhapsody had multiple sequels that never even came to the U.S. Which is a shame. Yeah, it's it's though I've heard that the last game in the series was not especially good. It, it's weird. It's kind of a... It, it's not a musical. I mean, it's not like Rhapsody at all as much as it is a weird, surreal, shifting timelines kind of thing. Like Radiant Historia about 10 years before Radiant Historia would be a good way to describe it. But it's it's interesting because you kind of sort of see things pop up every now and then that are, are kind of banging on the idea of maybe doing musical sort of stuff. Again, Persona 4 Dancing All Night, kind of on the outer edge of that. The hint that we might get a Persona 3 Dancing All Night, which I, I, I don't necessarily need, but okay, whatever. Also kind of banging on the outer edge of that. The fact that we actually saw a Sakura Wars game come out in the U.S., even if it wasn't necessarily musical-themed so much as it was theater-themed, is still very reassuring, even if Sony then took the franchise out back and murdered it in a ditch. I'm still so, so angry about how that was handled by all parties. Yeah, I... I mean, that, that's my favorite video game series of all time, and I was like, yay, we're getting Sakura. Well, it's five, but hey, we're getting it in English, and then it just... And again, it goes back to the same reason some of these musical games haven't happened, because it's an, a very female-oriented game, um, as in protagonists, even though it's still somewhat of a dating sim meets SRPG, but, you know, it's frilly, there's costumes, it's very feminine, very effeminate. Um, from from when you look at it, that first impression that you get is it's just going to be a bunch of girls singing and dancing, and that's, like, completely not the game. But I, I think a lot of audience looked at that in the West and were like, ugh, I don't want to play that, I'm a boy. Whereas in Japan, you know, Jesus, Sakura had a store for years um you know it it sold better than sonic it sold better than final fantasy over in the west when the games actually came out so it, it's such a different dynamic between the east and the west at least when sakura wars games were actually coming out that i think that's why sega never finally pushed the button going full musical like it seemed they wanted to with um sakura wars 3 in france i kind of feel like you can trace 
the the lineage of a related genre talking about Sakura Wars and see how much that has succeeded in the past few years, and that's through the line of the dating simulator. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. Yeah, at 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 the risk of kind of sparking a discussion that'll probably need to be had at another point. Uh, adventure games in the West died a, a slow and painful death for a while until being revitalized in the past few years. But in Japan, they they kind of broke off into the dating simulator subgenre, which yeah. is still doing very well to this day. And the visual novels. Right. And it's you've got your, your standard visual novels, you've got your dating simulator-esque visual novels, you have your kinetic novels, things like that. And they all kind of occupy this sort of we want the game to tell us a story and maybe offer us some basic choices, but we want that narrative above all else concept. But the dating simulators for a long time were the ones that you would get. They were the major ones that you would get in Japan. And the closest we got to that for years, for years, was Thousand Arms. Which is, I mean, a, a decent game but not red company's best oh no especially compared to sakura wars mm. like it has a great catchy opening song it has some interesting character designs but oh it's repetitive yeah mechanically and structurally that game is is not what i would have wanted as my first exposure to that particular subgenre. but it is a thing that existed and it, it gave gamers that access and then all of a sudden bioware shows up and they're like hey Let's give people the ability to do dating simulator type stuff, but also give them the ability to be like sp space wizards and fucking, you know, like m magical saviors and whatever the shit. And so they put dating simulator elements into fantasy role playing games or science fiction role playing games. And people ate that shit up. They thought it was great. So you had people who were not necessarily interested in the idea of the dating simulator as a thing that existed and may still not be looking at, you know, an RPG where you can romance an alien or, you know, like some type of like a dwarf, whatever. And they're like, OK, I am 100 percent on board with this. And it it opened the door for games that dealt with that sort of thing as the primary mechanic instead of as a side mechanic to start coming over to the U.S. Yeah, um, it's interesting because it seems like Japan is where ideas are born for video game genres, but they really don't take over in the West until a triple-A level publisher really runs with it. Uh, I mean, the only exception to that is role-playing games because you know, we wouldn't have Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy if it wasn't for wizardry and the love people over there had for that. But um, like, like you said, with the, with the rhythm genre, it started over there, and then, you know, it, it was pretty good, and then the U.S. did rock band, and um, it crazy took off for a while. Or the dating simulator is, a, is another fine example. And adventure games, it was really popular over here, then it died off, and it didn't really come back until we started importing some Japanese versions of the yeah, oh, and there's also, like, again, there's there's a whole big discussion on how adventure games have kind of evolved in three different but semi-concurrent paths that could probably be had, like, a different day. But looking at that evolution is more useful for the purposes of trying to look at where musicals could potentially go. 
because again, it's we didn't have anything for a while, and then all of a sudden, a couple of major developers started experimenting with that concept, and then suddenly you started seeing all of these dating simulators come out on Steam, because Steam will accept basically anything, so long as you have the money to pay to put it onto the service, and then suddenly Kickstarter allows people to start bringing these games over, and suddenly, holy shit, there are actual visual novels on the PlayStation Vita and the PlayStation 4, and Sony's like, alright, whatever, that's fine, we don't give a shit. Which is completely different from what they were saying like five or six years ago. Oh yeah, well, and I think it's because uh, back in the PSP era, Sony had a level of arrogance, um, which, which is not to say that they didn't deserve it, but um, they had this er- this arrogance about them. Were like, well, screw you! You're going to put out this video game in this format with these details. Like, you have to put out Sakura One and Two on the same disc and only charge a regular amount for it. I mean, that's what killed working designs when they tried to do that with, with, with what they did to Ark the Lad. But again, that's a whole other conversation. Whereas now, you know, it's kind of a three-way battle. Um, you know, N- Nintendo is actually not with the Wii U, but with the 3DS and with the upcoming Switch and, you know, control and who is winning between the three big companies and especially now with Steam, you know, PCs becoming as popular as they were in the 80s and 90s again. Um it's like Sony's like, well, let's take what we can get. Oh, yeah. And, and and be nice about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's also worth mentioning that there just aren't as many games coming out as there used to be. It's like the PlayStation and the PlayStation 2 eras were huge for games coming out because there were lots of developers, lots of smaller companies and larger companies alike that were just pushing shit out constantly. There were periods, even during the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 era, where... I would rent things through Gamefly, and my queue would be full for a three-month period. And I haven't been able to fill up my queue for a six-month period in a year or two at this point. So it's, you know, it's kind of coming to the point where Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo are kind of looking at what's being offered to them and saying, fuck, you want to bring something out? Do it. We don't We don't care anymore. Yeah. Um, like, console gaming right now is at a low in terms of not necessarily popularity, but what's being put out and popularity. Because back when we first started doing, you know, video game stuff, we would get like, what, 20 or sometimes 30 console games sent to us a week. And we might get a PC game every few months because it was an adventure game company going, holy shit, Alex really likes point and click games. Please, please publicize us. We want to sell a dozen copies. Oh yeah, we would we would get Paradox coming to us fairly consistently because they were a prolific PC developer and that was it. And, and, and now it's the exact opposite. It's like 20 PC games a month or a week and people are like, wow, I've never heard of this game and I'm primarily a Sony gamer, so I can't take any of these. And, you know, console games are just kind of drying up. And part of that's how much they cost to develop now with all the marketing and the amount of return they expect. Whereas with the PC, you know, developers are are like, oh, we sold 100 copies. That's great because it cost us diddly to make this because we're indie developers. And the, the whole market has changed. And the nice thing about that is because the market has changed and because you can take so many more chances with the PC than you could with a console game. That's why we're seeing all of a sudden more musical games come out. And and they're primarily with the exception of Tokyo Mirage Session, all PC games. Oh yeah. And it's the thing is, is that we're also starting to see characters who are musically inclined characters 
become big parts of the discussion as far as it relates to, you know, notable characters just in general in, in the world of gaming. Like, you know, five, ten years ago when we would have discussions about, like, who are the most recognizable or who are the most notable characters, you would be having conversations about the obvious ones with Link and Mario being at the top. And then you would be like, oh, well, here's Frank West. Oh, well, here's Phoenix Wright. Oh, well, here's this and this. And more recently, we've started seeing characters like Hatsune Miku and Super Sonico pop up in the conversation, which is also really interesting because those characters didn't really become big because their parent companies gave them a U.S. presence worth the shit. Miku became big kind of as an independent thing and slowly grew once Sega started releasing those games in the U.S. to the point where, you know, there was a Miku Expo in 2014, which was in New York. And then there was a Miku Expo this year that was in multiple cities, 10 cities across the entirety of North America, which is a huge growth in a two-year period. And Super Sonico only became popular because of word of mouth. There was nothing about that character at all in the U.S. Basically, just Westerners just found out about her, and they're like, oh, this we don't know anything about this character. Let's make her popular. And granted, it was because of, you know the fact that she's the male gaze personified, but she is predominantly a character who revolves around both her musical accomplishments within the confines of her own existence and her modeling slash physical attributes. So it's, it, it's very easy to see that there are these musically inclined characters who have just exploded in popularity in the U.S. and that could have something done with them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, there are so many characters, uh, but besides the new idol wave that's finally hitting the U.S. after it's been in Japan forever. But, um, you know, even old characters that um, are pretty much begging to have musical numbers. Um, going back to, like, for example, the N64, If and you probably haven't played this because you're not really a Pokemon person, but um, Pokemon Puzzle League, uh, if you pay attention, they took all the musical numbers from the Pokemon cartoon and put them into the video game as background. So it's not a musical in the sense that we're talking about, but they took the musical numbers from the cartoon and put them in the game. So, And for a while, that was the closest we came to a musical on a, on a console besides Rhapsody. And it, it sold really well. It's still crazy popular. It keeps popping up on the virtual console and doing really well. So... You would think at some point Nintendo would go Game Freak, make a musical Pokemon game. And for good or for bad, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and I mean to be fair, like now I did I did play Pokemon Puzzle League. Uh, I found it like cheap at a garage sale or what have you. And it, it it definitely kind of sort of fits into that outside range sort of discussion. I don't know if Nintendo would really look at that or would have looked at that until recently. But it's certainly yeah, a thing they might point at now. But it's also kind of worth noting that for as much as we've been talking about, you know, musicals and gaming in general, and as much as we've been talking about, you know, how these sorts of things exist and, like, how well they've been doing, that it, it is probably worth noting that Tokyo Mirage Sessions didn't really move a whole lot of copies despite the fact that it was a game based off of two relatively popular franchises in 
the SMT franchise and the Fire Emblem franchise, and despite all of the hype surrounding it. Uh, in the U.S., in its first week, it only moved about 50,000 copies, and at present worldwide, the numbers are indicating somewhere between 100 to 200,000 units, which Atlas is saying that they're happy with, Nintendo is saying that they're happy with, but is clearly not the kind of numbers that you would think that they would have wanted, given that their individual track records as franchises have been much better with Persona 4 having done a couple million units and, you know, the most recent Fire Emblems having done a couple of million units apiece. Yeah, and I think part of that is uh, it's very parallel to what happened with Rhapsody. And I, I know we keep coming back to these two games, but uh, their their whole saga is so eerie similar that it's hard not to make this conversation revolve around those two games, the past and the present, and trying to predict what the future will be. But um, you had... Good hype, you had two popular genres, but then you had people that were like, oh, they're censoring. And granted, it was a small but vocal crowd on the internet, but, you know, negativity is sometimes sadly louder than positivity. And you had people that were like, musical? I don't want musical with my Megaton. I want Jack Frost, and I want Succubus, and, or even the Fire Emblem. Um, you know, people were like, oh, that's a little too, too weird for me. And so I think what we saw with Tokyo Mirage Sessions is as much as people like you or I are really into that, that idea of musical gaming and that the potential for the genre has definitely expanded over the past 20 years, you're still getting people that are like, eh, that's not really for me, for better or for worse. And of course, it didn't help that it was on the Wii U. Yeah, the Wii U is probably, I think, the bigger sticking point, honestly. As as much as we've talked about like the game itself, and as much as the game was well-received, you know, it, it's got like an 81 on Metacritic based on 52 reviews as of this point, which is not nothing. The, the reality is the Wii U is a dead console. Hell, they just announced, they just announced, like, as we're talking about this, that they have manufactured the very last Wii U. Yep, yep, that was back in, like, I think it was like two weeks ago they stopped, and which of course means if you have a Wii U, you should probably go out and buy a new one before they no longer exist and they're on the third-party market. Um, but at the same time, though, if we take a look at that, remember that Pokken Tournament, which is not the best fighting game in the world, outsold Street Fighter 4, and that's a Wii U exclusive. Sure, but it's by that same token, that's also a Pokemon game. And it's, you can't, it, it's hard to make the kind of comparison between Fire Emblem and Mega Ten, which are successful in that they do one to two million units per game that's released, versus anything related to Pokemon, which one to two million units would probably be considered to be horrible. Yeah, it's it's I mean, put another zero behind that and it's decent selling. Oh, absolutely. And it's <laughs> like it, it's the same comparison point for Monster Hunter on the PSP. Monster Hunter on the PSP did gangbusters relative to a Monster Hunter game. But if you're talking about like it being a success or what have you. You know, like the the God of War game, if they had if it had done the same kind of numbers that Monster Hunter did, would have been considered a catastrophic failure. Yeah, it all just depends on the genre, the publisher, and whether it's a new IP or not. Definitely, and it's it that's also kind of a problem is that diehard fans of the SMT franchise and the Fire Emblem franchise 
knew for a fact that these two games were being crossbred into Tokyo Mirage sessions. Random aside, I should probably mention here, the highest selling game on the PSP was in point of fact Monster Hunter Portable the Third at 4.6 million units. So fuck God of War, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, the the bigger point is this franchise, Tokyo Mirage Sessions, is not one that would have resonated with the more casual audience as anything other than a brand new intellectual property. Somebody who knows about Persona 4 and thinks it's great probably doesn't give a shit about the Mega 10 franchise as a whole, unfortunately. Hmm. So they're going to kind of look at that game and they're going to say, oh, all right, this is a thing that exists. Hooray for that. And then they're not going to invest in it because they have no idea that this thing is related to Persona 4. You're going to see better sales on something with Persona 4's name attached to it than you are on a game that's made by the same developers who've worked on the same sort of games in the past because a lot of people are only casually interested. They, they only have so much interest. They only have so much information that they're going to bother looking into. Yeah, a good comparison would be uh, Pokemon Conquest because, you know, that sold really well for uh, Nobunga's Ambition game. And so, of course, Tecmo Koi is like, oh, let's bring this over for the consoles and the PC because obviously this game is really popular. But no, it didn't sell very well. No. And it's... <laughs> Which is sad, because I love that game, you know, from a little kid back on the NES and the PC, but this this attempt to relaunch it thanks to Pokemon Conquest failed miserably, and it's similar to what happened here with Tokyo Mirage Session. Oh yeah, absolutely. It would be like... The, the appropriate equivalent would be looking at the sales of the Pokemon Mystery Dungeon franchise and saying, oh, Shiren's gonna move all these copies, <laughs> and no... Shiren is bullshit, and I, lo I love Shiren, don't get me wrong, but Shiren is bullshit compared to Pokemon. You're going to do a tenth of what the Pokemon game did, because it had Pokemon attached to it. And that's the point, is Tokyo Mirage Sessions is probably being considered a success by both Nintendo and Atlas, because it was a game that was released on a dead console, with no actual name brand associated with it, that is also a musical. And the companies probably looked at that and said, shit, if this thing does 100,000 copies, that'll be a miracle. And it does more than that, definitively more than that, if not a lot. And they're like, all right, this is this is a success. And while there are a lot of different lessons that you can take away from that, that Square Enix in particular could probably take away from that, come to think of it, probably the most important thing to take away from it is that for a game with no real actual significant franchise branding attached to it, on a dead console, featuring a lot of ruminations on idol culture and a musical backbone. That's not bad. No, I mean, it, it surpassed my expectations, and I have to admit I was, I was pessimistic that people other than you and I and maybe my wife would enjoy it. Yeah, and it's that's a demonstrable thing when you think about it, because like if you if you go and look at Steam, going back to that for an example... There are multiple visual novel type tags associated. Like, you can find dating simulator tags, you can find visual novel tags all over the place. There is no musical tag on Steam. There's a music tag, but that will bring up every single thing that has something to do with music. 17 pages of rhythm games, gaming soundtracks, and tools that you can use for editing music for some reason. But... Like, if you want to find an actual musical game in there, good fucking luck. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, you basically have to know that the game exists to find it. Like, if I go and look up, let's talk about the three games that I know are on Steam without even looking at Steam. The Bard's Tale is on there, the remake. Um, Dominique Pomplemousse is on there. And um, Wailing Heights. And if you look them up, the category tags, there isn't a musical one. You'll get, like, Claymation for Dominique or RPG for Bard's Tale. But there isn't, like, singing and dancing tag. No. And it's that's kind of going to be that's going to make it difficult for somebody who wants to get invested into the idea of games that utilize music as a way of conveying narrative because there are a few games on the PC like not a lot maybe like 3 4 5 games in total but they are lost in the sauce when you start having to dig through a tag that's also attached to you know race the sun and don't get me wrong race the sun is a great game but it's not the game you're looking for in that case you know well i think what it's going to come down to is that in order for the genre to really take off it's going to have to be a triple a publisher with branding and musical numbers for people to go oh this is pretty cool i could make a musical game or some other developer to go hey i could make a musical game and the problem is getting all those lined up in a row to make it happen. Yeah, but by the same token, I also feel like we don't necessarily need it to be a huge success. And I feel like there is definitely room for the musical genre to start growing slowly until somebody latches onto it. And I feel like that's actually probably going to come from Japan more than anything else because, because Japan loves its fucking idol games. Yeah, I think if if we had to put hard money on who it would be that would make this genre take off, if anyone, it's going to be Sega. Yeah, the Hatsune Miku franchise is a thing they're going to keep pumping out until that thing is dead at this point. And oh, I agree. The fact that they've not only released a game this year, but also a VR demonstration type piece for the Sony PlayStation VR that I have seen more than a few people really interested in as well as a patch for the most recent Hatsune Miku game that lets you view concert-type stuff in VR. Like, those cannot be understated as being important for this genre. And Hatsune Miku itself is not a musical character. Like, she's not really conveying a full film-type story in the course of one game so much as you know, three-minute music videos here and there that may or may not have a plot associated with them. And to be fair, Jesus Christ, some of the music videos and some of the songs that come out of Hatsune Miku are fucking terrifying. But the the bigger point here is that character is relative to the genre and relative to fan expectations. Huge. And a lot of the fans of Hatsune Miku are rabid fans. I have sat in on the live streams where people have legitimately gotten emotional about songs, about sequences from those games. And I'm not that person. I may not ever be that person, but that character is doing more for the idea of musicals and idol culture and things of that nature in the West than anything that's coming out right now. Yeah, and I mean, wh whether you're a fan of idol culture games or idol culture in general, that's 
that's really what's going to have to lead the charge. I, I see Tokyo Mirage Sessions as going the same route as Rhapsody, where it's probably going to inspire some people down the line, but it might not inspire people in a musical way, much like how Rhapsody sold well enough to give us Disguy and oh my god, look at the influence that has had, not only in bringing over Nippon Ichi, but um, Idea Factory, Compile Heart, and all these other companies that didn't have a Western presence at all. I, I think that's where Tokyo Mirage Sessions' legacy is going to be, is it's going to have an influence, but not necessarily in a musical way. And so I think that we're going to have to see something like a, a, a Miku or maybe some weird crossover with Miku that really makes the genre take off. Like, knowing Sega, I could see, like, let's say Miku singing Sakura Wars and, you know, putting her in Sakura Wars outfits or something like that to uh, maybe test the waters to see if they could go full musical like they seem to want to with Sakura back in the Dreamcast or Saturn days. I kind of agree with that idea, though. I feel like something is going to happen before that, and that's probably going to be that idol culture is going to become more of a thing within the world of gaming than it is right now. Because even as little as five years ago, Western gamers had little to no exposure to the idea of idol culture, and the most that you could have really gotten from it was the occasional references to it in anime or in your not necessarily directly translated Japanese RPGs that you got in the U.S. that were based in a real-world setting. So, like, you know, maybe a Persona 2 would casually mention something that could kind of be related to idol culture, but was not something that would make a lot of sense for us in the West, and it would it would be, you know, localized a bit to make it a little more sensible. Working designed it. Exactly. And even before that, like, you know, the, the Robotech franchise. Lin Min May is basically a Japanese idol, but that's oh, yeah. that's not a thing that we register as something that makes sense to us. The closest that we have in our heads to attach to that was at the time Madonna, and now maybe like a Britney Spears or a Christina Aguilera or an Ariana Grande. And that's still so far removed from what the Japanese idol is that it's kind of like comparing water to ice in a lot of respects. Yeah, it's one of those things that there's just a big cultural divide. And and that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just, you know, every culture is different and Japan really loves their idol culture. And it's something that doesn't necessarily translate 100% into the West. And I, we, we've seen things like that, but, you know, like like the Love Hina um, anime and manga series, we would occasionally get one of their cast albums where because the it was so popular over there that their that the voice actors became idols and would do concerts together. But that's really the closest we, we've had over there is kind of experiencing it, not even secondhand, but thirdhand. Right. And again, that's all started to change in the past few years, because, again, Persona 4 really pushed us in the direction of here is idol culture, here is what it means, here is this character who's deeply entrenched in it, and here's this sub-narrative that you have to deal with. And then in Persona 4 Golden, it's here's a bunch of other shit surrounding that character that gives you a further deep dive. And then finally, in Persona 4 Dancing All Night, it's... It's all about it. It's all about multiple characters that are directly dialed into this concept. And 
to be fair, it's not the best first impression because it, it, it's an entire, you know, idol group that's based around food products. What? But it's something, and it's it's exposure on a level that most Westerners hadn't really had. And you're starting to see Westerners grasp that idea of, oh, this is idol culture. I understand what this is. You know, like a game like Omega Quintet can come out and they can say, yeah, okay, I recognize that that is a thing. And it, it's bits and pieces. More and more games are starting to incorporate those elements. And gamers can look at that and say, yes, I understand what this means to the point where something like Tokyo Mirage Sessions is understandable when five years ago it, it would have been ridiculously foreign on an absurd degree. Yeah, and I, I mean, it it depends on where it's going to go from here. Uh, will idol culture remain something in the West that is a amusing curiosity to a small subsect of gamers? I mean, because even with Miku's popularity, I mean, it's not something that's going to sell like GTA levels or Mass Effect levels or Dragon Age or, or things like that. But it, but it's growing. The question is, how big will it grow, and how long will it last? I mean, is it going to die out like DDR and Rock Band, where it was popular and now people are like, ah, eh, it's cute, or is it going to be something that takes full, goes full blown, like an RPG or a fighting game? And I would kind of argue that again, it probably depends on the games that we see in the next couple of years. Exactly. Right now, I'm going to make the argument that we're probably going to start seeing more experimental games featuring idol culture type characters. And again, that's probably going to start with something like, as I've mentioned previously, idol death game TV, because it's, that is a game that's being published um, in Japan by D three. And it's probably going to get a look from somebody like either a Namco Bandai uh, or, you know, an X seed to be brought over here because it is a game that works off of idol culture, which is the thing that we are exposed to now and misery tourism, which is thanks to games like Danganronpa and the zero escape series, something that we're exposed to now. So it's that there's definitely going to be a look at that where people are going to try and get that game brought out in the U S if that game comes out, it's probably going to do okay. If that game does okay, we're probably going to start seeing a renewed interest in bringing out games that are idol-centric without being Miku. And I think it's probably going to start with the PC, because, I mean, as you just mentioned, D3's um, doing it, and, um, you know, they just released Onichanbara for the PC, and which it's apparently it's pretty good if you don't get hit with some of the few bugs, but they, they seem to be um, rarely occurring bugs. But I think I think we're going to see D3. They might even self-publish it like they did that um, with the Onichan Bara series on the PC. And I think that's where it's going to take off because you're going to get the the Danganronpa audience, which, of course, if you notice, Nipponichi's recently put that out on Steam. And I, I think after that, um, you might see a couple genres blurring. Like maybe you'll get a visual novel about idol culture or maybe you'll get an adventure game that that is kind of part visual novel, part, um, you know, dating simulator about idol culture. And I think it's slowly going to grow from there, depending on how good the games are and how popular they are. And and eventually that zeitgeist is going to hit and you're going to see something weird. Some AAA company is going to go, ah, hell with it, and put out something strange like Final Fantasy the Musical or 
you know, like I said, maybe a Pokemon game with a lot of singing in it. I would actually argue that we're probably within the next five years going to see a musical game come out of Telltale. Oh, I mean, not, not that I... <laughs> that noise. It, but, oh, I mean, yeah, there that's... was a time when I loved Telltale, and I thank them so much for giving me three more Sam and Max games and the Strong Bad games, but, oh, that is that is such a sore, sore subject with me these days, that company. Oh, yeah, no, I, I definitely feel like you and I are in the minority because I've had this conversation with others, including Aaron, um, uh, Jack, and Zeke from the podcast, and they kind of are not necessarily on board with it. But no, it's, it's yeah, I'm definitely tired of Telltale. I, I definitely, like, that noise is the noise that my soul makes whenever Telltale comes up. But, but. Actually, uh, well, now that you brought it up, I think one of the Strong Bad episodes was a musical. Yeah, but. But that's more a Brothers Chap thing than a Telltale thing. Right. They, they, I, I feel like, I feel like sooner rather than later, they might see the value in creating an adventure game that has some more musical elements and that will probably be the point. I would think that if Telltale gets involved, and I don't see any reason why something won't pop up sooner or later that'll pique their interest in it, if Telltale does something like that, that would probably be the point where you would start to see other, maybe not necessarily AAA developers, but developers who are on that outer periphery of the AAA genre start to look at that idea and go, hmm. So it's, yeah. you know what, I'm not the biggest fan of Telltale, but I feel like I feel like maybe it's going to be them or Double Fine. Because Double Fine's already tried that before-ish oh, yeah. with Brutal Legend, which is a game that did not come up because it's not really a musical, but it's heavily influenced by its music, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, Tim Schafer's definitely a guy that loves to take chances or, you know remake his old games from when he was at LucasArts. And I, I could definitely see a, a double fine doing that. In fact, I'm now that we say that, I'm kind of surprised he hasn't gone to, oh, let's try it. Um, if he's listening, make something. I, I, could, I can definitely see, like, for example, him throwing a musical number into Psychonauts 2. Yeah. I would, I would definitely say that it, it's probably, if it doesn't come from whoever is going to develop the next Undertale, uh, it's probably going to be either Double Fine or Telltale that's going to latch onto that concept and say, let's do this. Yeah, um, I still think Sega is probably going to be the company that, that blows the door once it finally takes off, but it's not going to be the company that does, has those first few successes. And if Disney was still around making video games, you know, instead of because they shuttered their development, I, I'm actually really surprised that other than Epic Mickey 2, they haven't gone full, oh, let's make a Frozen game and throw all the songs in with musical numbers. Yeah, though I would probably also argue that outside of Sega doing it, we might also see something come out of Bandai Namco because, again, they own D3 at this point. So it's very yeah. possible that they might actually just look at, you know, Idle Death Game TV themselves and say, fuck it, let's see what happens and push that out in the U.S., well, and, and um, Namco's also got licenses that they could attach to it, too, to try and give it a bigger audience. I mean, anything, I, like, I don't think we're going to see, like, Pac-Man the musical come from them, but I think since they do have a lot of licenses under their belt, and they do have a lot of RPGs under their belt, that they could tinker with that somehow and kind of do a, a combination. Yeah, and I, I definitely feel like, at the end of the day, and this is probably where we're going to wrap this up here, 
there's a lot of possibilities. There's a big possibility space that there wasn't even three or four years ago, thanks to what's already come out. And you can definitely look at something like Tokyo Mirage Sessions and you could say, well, this was not a success. And it wasn't by the metrics that we commonly understand games to be successful under. But 200,000 units, 150,000 units, whatever the ultimate number ultimately shakes out to be, was clearly enough for both Nintendo and Atlas, and it may well be the sort of thing that lets them say, you know what, let's try this again on the 3DS or on the Switch or whatever. Or it may even be the sort of thing that inspires Atlas to say, you know what, let's try this on our own. Forget, um, you know, like the Nintendo influence, and let's do, um, I don't know, Devil Songmaster or whatever the shit under the SMT franchise banner. And there's a lot of space to room in, a lot of space to grow, a lot of room to expand in, and there are a lot of companies that have always been in this space and have to be looking at the success of something like TMS or of something like Hatsune Miku and wondering, can I do something like that too? And I think for the first time in decades at this point, the answer from the western market perspective is starting to lean towards a very conservative yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that completely. Uh, the last real Western musical we had before Wailing Heights this year was The Bard's Tale. And the fact that we had two really good musical games come out in the same year, I mean, it, people are might be listening and going, oh, two games, that's a lot. But it really is for this kind of experimental genre. And the fact that they were both good and pretty well received by their target audiences gives me hope that we're going to have some slow incremental growth over the next few years and and maybe actually have someone that really capitalizes on the idea and makes something super successful or well, super successful for the metric. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like that's as good a place as any to wrap up as far as that discussion goes. But I do want to say once again, Mr. Lucard, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast this week. Uh, it's, it's, it's taken some doing and there's been some hiccups along the way, but I, I feel like this was definitely a, a really good conversation and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime. That's what I'm here for. But for those of you out there listening, uh, if you did like what you heard today, be sure to like subscribe and comment on the podcast. You can check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google music, Stitcher, and basically anywhere else where podcasts are hosted. If you want to follow along on social media, you can check me out over on Twitter at Mark B. Writing and on Facebook at Mark B. Writing Home. I know that your social media accounts are generally not public, Alex, but is there anything in particular you would like to plug? Uh, just, uh, I guess, what little remains a diehard game fan, or um, you can generally find me, if you're looking for me online these days, more in the tabletop side of things. All right. And that about wraps it up for this week. Join us next week when our topic will be why Rent would be the worst video game ever. On behalf, both play it. Yeah, don't. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> we would hate ourselves and be swearing like we were playing Catherine on the highest level difficulty, but we'd, we'd both play it just for the sake of the masochism. Uh, I can't even say no to that. I played Leisure Suit Larry Box Office Bust. Um... <laughs> But join us all next week. Thank you very much for coming, and stay safe out there, Junkers.